Our text this morning is found on page 317, 318, and 319. It's a long text. If you'll allow me some of the sections to summarize, I will, when those not prominent in the story uh, are, uh, details are included. The title of our sermon is A Parent's Greatest Fear, How Pride is Broken. You can see on the outside of the bulletin, death, grief, and hope, how those three truths come together in the life of David and Absalom. In some ways, this is a triad if I was preaching three sermons on brokenness. February 5th, I preached on Psalm 51, David's brokenness, the pathway to Christian formation. And then on March 19th, from 2 Samuel 14, we looked at hope for my broken family. Today, every parent's greatest fear, we could entitle this, How Pride is Broken in the Life of a Believer. And you'll notice the outline of your text. I've used the outline of 1 Peter 5, verse 8, God is opposed to the proud. We see that in Absalom's death and story. But God gives grace to the humble. We see that in David's grief, even in his confusion and his pain. And then our hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, humble yourself before God's mighty and merciful hand. Because God is mighty and merciful, we must live in humility before him. And the text will point us to how you grow humility in your life as a believer. It starts with acknowledging the dangers and the evil of pride that are lurking inside you, first and foremost. Secondly, seeking in your life to respond in humility however flawed and however weak you are in your responses to your circumstances and other people, how do you respond in humility? But even in your pain and confusion to know that if you belong to Christ, God's not finished with you yet. If you failed the test, life is not over in God and he comes to us by his grace. You could call this sermon the benefit of low self-esteem. Now I know in modern Therapy and movements uh, in the contemporary world today, feelings of low self-esteem are just about considered the worst thing you could ever deal with and that your job is to be happy at all times. The Bible doesn't teach that and actually teaches that grief and sadness are tools that God uses and low self-esteem has the potential to teach us what it means to live in poverty of spirit. You see, God is so much greater than we think. He's more holy, he's more wise, he's more powerful and more pure. And we are horribly ungrateful, all too often making our demands of God, but lacking the thankfulness that God truly deserves. And God will bring us to the end of ourselves to teach us that he really is enough. You see, the beauty of low self-esteem is the recognition that you can get over yourself 
and that God can fill you with healing and hope no matter what you experienced or failed. In that sense, God does aim to crush us, but to crush our pride so that pride will not destroy us. We'll see this in the text. I mentioned starts in chapter 18 and read along with me. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, or between the gates, as the Hebrew says, while all the army marched out by hundreds and thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with that young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Now, from verses 10 through 14, the report is given to Joab, and Joab says that you should kill him now. The Lord has given us, given him into your hand, us into his hands. Verse 14, Joab says, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, and he thrust them in the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel. For Joab restrained them and took Absalom, threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar that is the king's valley, in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Now from verse 19 to verse 30, two messengers come to give David the news. We'll pick up in verse 31 when David hears the news from the Cushite, the Ethiopian, and then also a trusted servant, uh, Hamaz, was also there as well. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all 
those who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. The Hebrew says he wept and he wept and he wept and he could not stop weeping. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, chapter 19, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. Heard that day, the king is grieving over his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you. You hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out, speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king rose, took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting at the gate, and all the people came before the king. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. Open our eyes and our minds and our hearts, Father, as we look deeply in the mirror of our own sinfulness and pride. And would you teach us, Lord, what it means to live poor in spirit and the beauty of humility that we see in the life of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. If there's anyone here that doesn't know the saving work of Christ, may today be the day of salvation. May they turn from their pride and trust in Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're new to us, We've been studying through 1st and 2nd Samuel. Just a couple of comments on the context here. The books of 1st and 2nd Samuel speak of a time in Israel when the period of the judges ends. Samuel's the last judge. And the period of the prophets began. He's Israel's first prophet. It was a time where Israel was living in fear, superstition and sensuality, that reflected more the pagan religions of the nations around them. But they asked Samuel, give us a king like the nations, because they were in fear. Their superstition, their sensuality led them to not listen to the voice of the Lord. God grants them a king, and Saul reigns over them, and for a time he pushes back their enemies. But Saul refused to listen to the voice of the Lord, and he is removed as the king, and Samuel anoints 
David, a shepherd boy, an outsider from the family of Moab and the eighth son. And he, as the anointed king, is one, we're told, who possessed God's heart. He was a man after God's own heart. And in his humility, he listened to the voice of the Lord. Saul sees the advantage of having David in his courts, and he brings David into the king's courts. And for a while, David fights the battles for Saul, and Israel is safe. But then Saul turns on David and tries to kill him, and then David flees as a refugee. And for years, David is in the wilderness, in the forest, in the caves, not only surviving, but being faithful to not harm the Lord's anointed. After Saul is killed in battle and his son Jonathan, David is anointed king at Hebron. And he unites the southern and northern tribes, moves the capital to Jerusalem. And there's a time of the golden age of Israel beginning under David's leadership. But in one of the more familiar passages about David in chapter 11, David takes another man's wife and then kills one of his own men and hides and covers up the deeds. And Nathan comes to David in chapter 12 and he confronts David. And David confesses his sin, but Nathan says, the sword will not depart from your house. This is the judgment. You will be forgiven, but you will experience the consequences And all of Israel will see this playing out. This plays out in his own family as Absalom, his son, kills Amnon, his stepbrother, for deeds done to Tamar, his sister. Absalom flees Jerusalem, and for three years, he is raising an army, and Joab knows it. So Joab brings him back to Jerusalem to keep him under watch. But David refuses to meet with his own son. Finally, Absalom manipulates Joab and gets an audience with the king. Eventually, Joab goes down to Hebron and he does raise an army and declares that he is the king and he attacks Jerusalem. David and his men flee and they're now in the forest, in the caves of Manheim, and Absalom has established himself as king. What we'll see here is that Absalom's life represents the danger and the evil of pride. He is a life where pride is personified in its danger and its evil. Absalom had natural strengths. Chapter 14 tells us that he was viewed as one of the most beautiful, praised leaders in all of Israel for his good looks, for his hair, for his stature. He had natural advantage that he used for self-promotion, but he was a usurper. He was a manipulator. And when he sat at the gates, he would tell people who were having problems, you need a judge like me that could solve your problems, not like David, you need someone who will be down here with the people. If I were king, I could help you out. He was a manipulator. He was a violent man. He used his power 
as a weapon against other innocent people. Pride does that. Pride is self-promoting. Pride is manipulative. But pride is also violent. Not only was he violent, but he was foolish. He wanted people around him to tell him what he wanted to hear. He was foolish to listen to Ahithophel. First, not to listen to him when he said, go after David now before he mustered his troops. But then later, to listen to Hushai, who said, go into David's concubines and make a declaration that you are the rightful king, that you are the one who's in charge of the alliances with all the neighboring countries, and that you have taken over the kingship. Absalom was lawless. He had no sense that the commandments of God or the presence of God had any bearing on his life. But now we see him in his pride, his pride that was self-promoting, his pride that was manipulative, his pride that was violent, his pride that was foolish, his pride that was lawless, and now he's helpless. The irony that by his very strength, his hair, he's caught between earth and heaven, helpless, and he's vulnerable. And pride is that way. It will lead you down a path, as Proverbs 14 says. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end is the way of death. It will leave you hanging helpless between earth and heaven with no hope and with no help. You see, in verse 9, it said that Absalom happened on to David's men. That's the narrator telling us that the strong providence of God opposes the proud. 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud. The strong providence of God said, your end is now. And Absalom, in his panic, begins to... Flee David's men and somehow or another loses his balance and finds himself trapped. That's what pride does. It promises power and performance. It leads us to panic. And then we find ourselves helpless and hopeless. We must start with knowing this. If we're going to grow in humility we need to see the danger and the evil of pride proverbs 18:12 says before destruction the heart of man is haughty but humility goes before honor proverbs 14:12 uh, that was 18:12 14:12 there's a way that seems right unto man but the end is the way of death let me pause right now and just speak to the young people for just a second especially the young men young men Absalom was a young man. He thought he knew better. He thought he knew better than his parents. He thought he knew better than his spiritual authorities. He thought he knew better than everybody in the nation. He thought he was invincible. There's something about the hubris of a young man, having been one, that makes you conclude the rules don't apply to you. It makes you think, I can do whatever I want to do and nothing will touch me and you think when I grow up 
I'll face the music. I'll make the tough decisions. No growing up for Absalom. No growing up for Chris Williams' 24-year-old cousin who died last night in a car wreck. Somebody in those cars were inebriated, drinking alcohol. There's a way that seems right in the man. I'll just say this to you, young men. Secondly, do not despise the words of your parents. In the commandments, the fifth commandment is to honor your father and mother. And it says, if you do, it will go well with you and you will live long on the earth. Obviously, here, Absalom despised the word of his parents. And I'll just warn you, young men, he who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. That's a lesson from the life of Absalom. What about David? We see David dealing with grief. And it's hard to understand, is this godly grief? Is this self-pity? He's the leader of the nation, and he seems only concerned about one person, the most wicked person in the nation. It does speak of the conflict of a parent's heart, doesn't it? This conflict at the end of Absalom's life where he said, Absalom, Absalom, I would have died instead of you. The longing in a parent's heart to save their children from pain and from hurt. This text reminds us that none of us as parents can save our children. Not only from pain, we can't save them from hell. We can't save them from the consequences of their decisions. David has prayed that Ahithophel's advice will become foolishness. And David has waited and longed to restore Absalom. He took charge of the strategy here. He appoints the commanders. David was familiar with the forest and the caves and his army had a tremendous advantage when they were not fighting in the open field but they were uh, there in the forest as the text tells us. But David can't make sense out of how to care for a son who's destroying the nation. How was his men to obey his command? He sends them out to war and then he says to them, but deal kindly with the young Absalom. The reason why they're in war is because of the rebellious Absalom. And the only thing that'll stop the war is for someone to take Absalom out. David's conflicted, he's confused. It reminds me that humility is not linear in its growth in our life. Humility is very complicated and difficult, and many things complicate clarity in our hearts towards what's the right thing to do or say. David had five years with Absalom in, five years since Absalom's treachery against Amnon. There's no record that David said anything Parents, I'll just ask you, you gotta speak courage to your children. Yes, you need to be humble, but you need to speak truth to your children. 
You know, regularly, Sandra and I would pray, God, if our children are in trouble or they're acting out, please let them be caught. It was a painful prayer because the last thing as parents we want is for our children to deal with harm. That's why we pray for courage to speak the truth. That's why we pray for humility to be able to make the right decisions. David is conflicted. In Psalm 51, he's very clear that this sin is his responsibility. A broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. But here, he can't see clearly. And it takes the stern rebuke of Joab. Now, Joab has his own issues, and later we'll talk more about what happens to Joab. But Joab is trying to help David self-differentiate and realize that your inability to deal with this grief is causing grief for the whole nation. Why did David have such difficulty in speaking truth to Absalom? Matthew Henry is very harsh and honest about David's failures. I'll not list all of those, but it's pretty obvious in the text. David failed Absalom and he failed the nation. But I do appreciate Gene Edwards interesting take on David and Absalom. He wrote a book called The Tale of Three Kings. It's a fictional interaction about Saul, David, and Absalom. And in a conversation with Zadok, Zadok thanked David. He said, you were never an Absalom. Thank you that you refused to be a Saul. Thank you that you never threw spears. Thank you that you never rebelled against authority. Thank you that you never consulted witches. Truly, David is crying, my son, my son, my son. But what we see here is that David is not the savior of the nation. Any more than a parent is not the savior of a family. There must be one greater than David that can stand in the gap between justice and love. It points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has taken our place both as Absalom in that he took the place of the curse on the cross that we deserved, but also he was the righteous David who made sense out of justice and love. He didn't cry, my son, my son. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if the reason is obvious. He took on the condemnation that we deserve so that we might be free, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might have access to God. This text does teach us the need for humility, but it also reminds us that God is not finished with us yet. This text is God reseating David on the throne. We'll see next week the coming of the king back into Jerusalem. And we'll be reminded that because we belong to Jesus, God's not through with us yet. Have you ever felt that way? Have you felt in your shame and in your sorrow, I've failed so much, I've let so many others down, and you think it's worthless to go on. Not if you belong to Jesus, not if you understand the gospel. The message of humility is that we can hope God's not through with us yet. Paul, in his creedal statement, says that we grow in our selflessness when we 
understand the character of the Lord Jesus. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to grasp, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant, being found as a man and being humbled to the point of death, death on the cross, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. Here's the good news. If we belong to Christ, God's not finished with us yet. If we belong to Christ, we can ask him to change us, to change us from the power and grip of pride in our lives. And we actually don't have to be fearful of low self-esteem. We can see that that's part of God's plan to make us more and more like Jesus. When I say low self-esteem, what I'm talking about is a humility that helps you see that God is bigger and wiser and holier than you can imagine. It's a humility that teaches you to trust God and not demand things from God. It's a humility that grows in thankfulness for what you have, not frustration for what you don't have. And it teaches you in the end, God is enough. God is enough. My circumstances may be falling apart. My family may have fallen apart. There may not be hope at this moment to know what to do. But God is enough, and he can be trusted. I was thinking about these last six years leading and serving here at First Presbyterian Church. has been six years. Hard to imagine, isn't it, all that we've been through. And I think that early on my prayers were probably, God, make us a powerful church. Let us be inspiring. Let us be influential. Maybe even let us be impressive. But my prayers today are simply, let us be a humble church. Let us be a church of low self-esteem. Let us be a place where there are people that know that God is enough. Let us be a welcome, soft shoulder for a weeping, broken-hearted person. You know, I experienced this Tuesday at our staff luncheon. Susie Lovecamp, our director of Hand in Hand, spoke a word of comfort to another staff person who will be having a child with serious health disabilities and complications. And Susie shared the story of Sadie, their third child. I was so impacted by the story, I asked Susie, would you send your, your transcript to me and could I share just a little bit of the story? And of course, in humility, thank you, Susie, for letting me share this. I just want you to listen to this. For the most part in my early life, I had hopes and dreams that if I did all the right things, God would deliver me from the chaos of my upbringing. We had three children, and when Sadie received her diagnosis, I can't give you the questions and the emotions that I was feeling. We were so devastated. We had no idea, what does this mean for our future? What does this mean for her future? 
Our hopes and dreams for our little girl were crushed. She'd have no graduation, no college, no wedding, no grandchildren. We felt so empty. My expectations were for an easy, comfortable life now because I belong to God. And yet, this rocked my world. Most of my life I spent thinking, if I just do the right things and please God, He will keep me from all harm. If I'll just be a good girl and perform well and make the right churches, uh, choices and serve Him. In my brokenness of my dreams, I had to let go of the good life. It was gone. But something else began to grow in me. I began to trust God. I began to believe that God was at work. I began to know in this pain and in my weak faith that God drew me near even in my grief and in my loss. We struggle to wrap our brains around what God might do, but I'll tell you now, Sadie is the joy of our family. She teaches us the joy and happiness of what it means to be loved by God. She's taught me so much about God's character and how to delight in Him as she delights in Him how she reflects his image for this world. It's tough to say now, but I thank God for all that he has taught me through this crushing path. You see, God brings difficulties into our lives to teach us that he really is enough. What about you this morning? Are you living life of self-sufficiency? Are you living a lie, hiding your behavior and your actions from others? Do you need the forgiveness and cleansing of the Lord Jesus Christ? In just a minute, we're going to sing this song, and then we're going to have communion. And this song is, All Glory Be to Christ. The first verse says, Should nothing of our efforts stand or legacy survive unless the Lord does raise the house the builders in vain do strive to you who boast tomorrow's gain tell me what is your life a mist that vanishes all at dawn all glory be to Christ is that your testimony today that you would ask God to drive out pride and self-will, which we all have, that you might glory in low self-esteem this morning.